My name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as one of the pastors here. And we're going to be continuing our series called The Doubter's Guide to Jesus, where we're exploring the different facets of the way that Jesus has revealed himself to us. And uh, today I want to start off this sermon by talking a little bit about the importance of names and titles. Okay, here's my title. Reverend Ben Espinoza. Pretty posh, right? Now, that's right. You can call me Reverend if you'd like. I prefer Ben or Pastor Ben if you're feeling respectful. And, and being called Reverend doesn't necessarily mean that you're stuffy or arrogant or you, you can make it like that. But to be called Reverend simply means that I'm ordained to ministry. I can preach. I can teach. I can administer the sacraments. I can marry. I can bury. I can do all those wonderful churchy kind of things, right? Sometimes folks will use this term as a, as a sign of respect for me. And sometimes I'll use it to get discounts and parking spaces too. But, but really it's a matter more of who I am and less about it being a sign of honor. But a lot of times we give titles and nicknames to people that we admire because we love them, we think they're amazing, or maybe even we fear them. The mother of dragons. Okay, I heard a couple laughs. It's okay, you can laugh. The great communicator. The king of rock. The Rock, the King of Pop, the Prince of Pop, which is something new. Yeezy. Okay, all right, there we go. The greatest of all time. LeBron, right? I don't need to tell you who these folks are because you know them because of their title. But I want to challenge you this morning. What if the title that we hear about every single Sunday, most days of our lives, the one that we claim for ourselves, what if that title is the one that we understand the least? I'm talking about Christ. Christ is a title. No, it's not Jesus' last name. His parents weren't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. His brothers weren't Jimmy Christ and Bobby Christ and T-Bone Christ. Christ is a title, right? It's, it's a title that we hear all the time, and it's a title that we claim for ourselves, Christian. Many of us think that we know what it means, but what if it meant so much more? And if we knew what it actually meant, how would it change the way that we live our lives as Christians? These are the questions that I want to reflect on a little bit this morning. We're going to be exploring what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And in order to do so, we need to understand a little bit about the Judaism of Jesus' day. You see, the Jewish people were always living under oppression. Remember, they were enslaved under the rule of Pharaoh. They wandered the desert for 40 years. They were conquered by the Babylonians, colonized by the Greeks, and taxed mercilessly by the Romans. But what sustained them in the midst of all of these oppressive circumstances was the promise that one day there would be a liberator who would destroy all of their enemies and set them free. And the earliest source we know of this promise is found in Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve have just, they've just fallen from grace and they're reaping the consequences. And here's what God says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, there's a promise here that a redeemer will crush the head of the enemy, Satan, the devil. And they will be free from the effects of sin and death. 
Now, when we read this with our modern ears as Christians, it doesn't really carry the same punch. We know it's Jesus he's talking about here. But when you're a Jew who's been forcibly put into slavery, who's been displaced, who's always living under the authority of dictators, this promise right here means something a little more special. It means something a little more tangible. It's the hope that you cling to. But it wasn't just this verse that talked about a great liberator. You see, in the Bible, there's this character named King David. And some of y'all probably know him from the story of David and Goliath. He's this young shepherd boy who kills a giant and then becomes king of Israel. And the Bible refers to David as a man after God's own heart. Yeah, he made a lot of mistakes, but ultimately, he was a man after God's own heart. And when you get into the story of King David, you'll see that a man named Samuel prophesied this over his king. It says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this prophecy was the one that the people of God in the Old Testament would cling to. You see, King David's dynasty lasted for 400 years until it collapsed. And if you're an observant Jew during this time, you're saying, well, where's this king, this Messiah, this hope that was promised to me? And when you go a little further into the Old Testament, you'll come across this book called Isaiah. Really, really thick book. There's this beautiful passage of scripture. It talks about how something beautiful, something powerful will come from the ashes of David's empire. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That's basically David's family name. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, just a little bit of context here. This verse is literally talking about a tree stump. And that's what David's empire had became. It was a tree stump covered in ashes. But you know, out of this tree stump will come a shoot. A small plant that one day is going to bear the most beautiful fruit. Let's read on. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. You see, this longing for someone to bring unity and peace and justice and hope was so ingrained in Jewish thought and life and it still is today. Today, devout Jews will pray for the shoot of Jesse to rise to power and be their deliverer. In fact, check out this prayer from one of the, the Jewish prayer books. It says, Have mercy, our, our God, on Israel, your people, on Jerusalem, your city, on Zion, the resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed. Now that last word here, anointed, is something special in Judaism. This is where we get our word Messiah. But in the Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, it's literally translated as Christos or 
Christ. You see, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ was the one who would establish God's glory on earth, unite his people, slay the wicked who oppress the poor and the needy, and bring justice to bear on the enemies of the Lord. He would be the one who would lead God's people out from under the yoke of oppression, liberating them from all of their oppressors. So when the time comes for Jesus to arrive on the scene, the Jewish people have someone very different in mind. They have someone very specific in mind named Judas Maccabeus. Now, to give you a little bit of context about who Judas Maccabeus was, you got to learn a little bit about this guy, Alexander the Great. See, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years. And in that 400 years, Alexander Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world, okay? And a little bit after that, one of his generals, Antiochus IV, came to power in the region. And when you're a general, when you become a king, you can choose a name for yourself. And Antiochus IV chose the name for himself Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. Now, if you're someone other than Jesus, and you call yourself God made manifest, I think we're going to have a problem here, to be honest. You see... Before Antiochus IV came to power, the Jewish religion was relatively tolerated. But when he came to power, that all went to pot. Okay? Antiochus outlawed the Jewish faith, and he forced every single person under his power to worship the Greek god Zeus. He persecuted the Jewish people mercilessly, which made the Jewish people angry and fearful. But the tipping point for the Jews was when this wicked dictator sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the temple. And here's why that's significant. You see, pigs were considered unclean animals in those days. You couldn't sacrifice them. So for someone like Antiochus, who hates the living God, to come into the temple, God's place of worship, and sacrifice an unclean animal, that was blasphemy. That was a violation it could no longer be tolerated. In fact, some people call it the abomination of desolation. This was a direct act of rebellion against the Most High God, and it couldn't be tolerated anymore. Now, to make the story short, a priest named Matthias, he started a rebellion against Antiochus, but it was a man named Judas Maccabeus that led the Jews to recapture Jerusalem and reclaim the temple in 164 B.C. That's Judas right there. So think about it. Judas Maccabeus is a man who sought justice on behalf of the Jews. He fought against the empire. He won. He seemed to have most of the characteristics of this Messiah. And the people believed that when this Messiah comes, he's going to look a whole lot like Judas Maccabeus, except a whole lot more powerful. So what happens when someone comes along who claims are the Messiah and doesn't look anything like this guy? Boy, bye. You can chuckle, it's fine. So, you know, you see, look at him. Jewish Maccabees, he's sitting there. He's telling the story about his victory against Antiochus. He's like, no, he didn't. No, no, I'm not going to let this pass, right? He's powerful. He's mighty. 
But Jesus doesn't look a thing like that. Nobody believes that Jesus can be the Christ. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem. He didn't command an army. He didn't call for the destruction of Rome. He didn't slaughter Romans. This man couldn't have been the Christ. And yet he himself claims that he was. And so many people believed him. It says this in the book of John. John's writing this. He says, look, I've written all these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we've heard about our whole lives. So if this Jesus was the Christ, but he wasn't some military leader who slaughtered his enemies, then who was he? Let's go back to Isaiah 11. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. Or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as the banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This whole set of verses takes on a whole new level of significance when you look at them through the lens of Jesus. You see, he won't judge people by how they look or by what people say about them. And you see this all throughout the Gospels, don't you? He's hanging out with prostitutes and drunks and soldiers and the poor, everybody that was shunned by society. He doesn't listen to what religious leaders tell him to think. No, he's beyond that. He's on the side of righteousness. He's on the side of, the ju- of justice. He's on the side of the oppressed. And all throughout the Gospels, we see him speaking truth to power. To the religious leaders, he says, you've got it all wrong. He uses his words to encourage the lowly, to strike down the proud. He draws people from all backgrounds to himself. And that's this theme you see all throughout the New Testament, that the Christ isn't just salvation for the Jews. He's salvation for the whole world. And I love this last verse here. It says, his resting place will be glorious. What resting place? For Jesus to be the Christ means that he exalts the lowly. He gives hope to the marginalized and the oppressed. He challenges the assumptions that we make about other people. He preaches the message of love and kindness and justice. He stands up to those who oppress others. And ultimately, he dies for a world he came to save. Through his resurrection, he provides us a way to have life abundant now and life eternal later. For Jesus to be the Christ means that he heals the wounds of your soul and the wounds of this created order. This isn't Moses. This isn't David. This isn't Judas Maccabeus. This is Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ. Now, the Bible says that if we believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's going to give us life abundant and eternal. And that's what we cling to. He is our hope. And for us to call ourselves Christian means that we have put our hope in Christ, that he alone is the answer for all of our deepest needs. But I want to challenge us here. We can lay claim to the title Christian because we believe him. But is it all that really entails? 
Here's what Jesus had to say about it in Mark 8. You see, he's, he's talking about how he's going to be dying for the sins of the world, that this is the will of God. And his disciple Peter, who's a bit of a hothead, you know, he flies off the handle every now and then. He says, no, Jesus, I'm not going to let this happen. We're going to fight for you. And what's Jesus' response? He says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter the enemy. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Peter's falling into that same trap that a lot of people did in those days. He thinks that Jesus is going to overthrow everything and assert his power. But Jesus tells him that his concerns aren't godly. They're human and they're wrong. Here's what he goes on to say. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels." Now, when we read that with our modern ears, we're thinking, well, Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to have to die for his faith. And that's part of it. But what Jesus is saying here is he says, look, you're going to be following a dead king. You're going to be following a failed Messiah in the eyes of the world. Do you really have enough faith to die for something that so few are actually going to believe in? He's asking Peter if he's going to put aside his human desires of who the Messiah is and follow Jesus the Christ, even if it means walking into death. And following Jesus, it's, it's pretty countercultural, isn't it? We follow a man who told us to love our enemies, to pray for them, to turn the other cheek, to flip tables in church, to speak truth to power, and ultimately die for those who don't love you. To follow a Messiah wasn't going to fly like this in Jesus' day. And if we're being honest, it might not fly for some of you either. But this is who we follow as Christians. And this is who we're supposed to look like. People who live and love like Jesus the Christ. So what? I want to leave you with a challenge. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, I have a question for you. How much of Jesus do you believe is the Christ? Do you like the idea of a Jesus who was made in your image? He's a military leader that's going to get the government off your back. He votes like you. He looks like you. He's going to make sure all the other faiths are made illegal. Or do you like the Jesus who is the literal image of God? filled with love and mercy and peace and truth? Do you like the Jesus who tells you to deny your pride, your anger, your lust, your greed, your hate, your desire for comfort? Or do you only love the Jesus who came, died, and rose again for your sins so you can have eternal life? Because this whole following Jesus thing, it's, it's not a la carte. It's a package deal, okay? You gotta believe in him 
and you got to follow him, even if it leads you to some pretty uncomfortable places. And not only that, you have to keep yourself from making Christ into something that you think is palatable. Because if you're doing this Christian walk right, then you're going to have to deny yourself every single day. Yes, his yoke is easy. Yes, his burden is more than light. And yet his desire for your life is sky high. And yet, he's worth it all. I want to leave you with this, uh, this image here. This, uh, this is an icon representing the 21 Egyptian Christians who were beheaded a few years ago for their faith. You might have seen the video. You might have heard the noise. But what's less well known is that the brother of two of these young men who were martyred thanked the extremists for leaving the sound on. Why? You could hear these martyrs declaring their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This young man goes on to say that since the Roman era, Christians have been martyred and have learned to handle everything that comes our way. It only makes us stronger in our faith because the Bible tells us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. These young men denied themselves. They took up their crosses and they followed Jesus to death. The question is, will you? Will you put away the sins that Jesus tells you to? The pride, the lust, the greed, the malice, the desire for comfort and put on the love of Christ? Will you put away your desire for power and comfort and give to those who ask everything of you? Will you live in love like Jesus the Christ? Because today we're receiving communion. And communion is where we remember all that Jesus has done for us, past, present, and future. We remember that he gave his life so that we could know God and have eternal life. Let communion be a reminder that by the wounds of this Christ, we are healed. But let it also be a time where we repent of the ways that we fall short of God's holy standard. Let it be a time of healing and let it be where we renew our commitment to Jesus the Christ. And after I pray and the band starts playing, you can see that there's communion stations all across the sanctuary. I invite you to spend some time with Jesus. Remember who he is, that he's the Christ, that he exalts the lowly. He cares about you. He cares for the shunned in society. And he's demanding the same of us. He's demanding that we lay down our preferences to love other people. Remember also that Jesus in the eyes of the world is a failed Christ. He's a dead guy. And it's interesting that he wants us to remember him as the one who gave his life. This is where we remember that God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son for us, for 
each of us. This Christ, the king of the universe, the one that stands up for justice, the one who stands up for peace and truth is the one who loves each and every one of you. So I'd invite you, remember that Jesus paid it all. This Christ, the king, paid it all so that you can have life abundant and life eternal because he loves you more than anything.